Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Ontario government is going to review the province's regional governments, raising the prospect for potential amalgamations. Hamilton's Police Services Board has approved a 3.23% budget hike, and Minister Ralph Goodale says that Canada is facing a growing threat from right-wing white supremacists and neo-Nazis. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting story yesterday from the Ontario government. Apparently they are going to comprehensively review the province's regional governments. Now, raising the prospect of potential amalgamations. Now, we've been there, done that here in the Hamilton area. Went through this, of course, with the Harris government, and uh, we had amalgamation. And I know, I know how you, many of you feel about it. Uh, Toronto went through it, Chatham-Kent, uh, Sudbury, Ottawa, a number of different places. But some were left alone. Uh, Halton region, of course, uh, Burlington, uh, Oakville, those places, that's actually still two-tier government. But the Ford government did say that they were going to do this. So it's not surprising the announcement's made. I guess the concern for a lot of people right now is, well, is just the, the precursor to more amalgamations. Joining us to talk about this, uh, Robert J. Williams, public affairs consultant, of course, former professor at the University of Waterloo. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. Good morning, Bill. Um, uh, for, the, for those that may remember the name, of course, uh, you were uh, deeply involved in the uh, the discussion, debate, I guess it was, about ward boundaries here in the Hamilton area, and you are well-versed, obviously, in, uh, in governance and municipal politics. Uh, with that in mind, are you surprised by the announcement by the Ford government? Not, not really. The there had been some mention of this back in in August, I believe it was, uh, that this was going to be coming down the line, and uh, the surprise was that it was yesterday. I, I really had no sense that this was happening. Although, you read through the uh, press release, there had been some activity going on uh, in late December, when of course nobody's paying attention to this. So there's been things in the background. This is the first public phase of this activity. So I was a bit surprised that it came yesterday. Well, and of course he did talk about this uh, after he, uh, in some people's minds, arbitrarily reduced the size of Toronto City Council. And at that time they did say that, look, this is not the end of this. We're going to review all governance. So I, I guess, you know, we had to know this was off on the horizon somewhere. Well, I think so, yes. there There is a certain continuity between the reference you made a moment ago to amalgamation in Hamilton and a number of other places. This is, in a sense, picking up some of the uh, threads from that uh, discussion. Uh, interesting how they're going to do this, because uh, I know that a number of the mayors who just happened to be meeting, the GTA mayors, uh, were meeting with uh, Toronto Mayor John Tory yesterday, so they they were all there when this announcement was made, and of course a lot of them had to make comments about this. Uh, but the, the the common thread I heard through most of this stuff was, look, at, we want we want to be involved in this. We want public consultation on this. And uh, that's what the government's promising at this stage. Yes, the... the uh it, the structure of the review is a bit odd to me in one sense that we've we've appointed they, they've appointed two what they call advisors uh, who are going to do some work uh, between now and the spring uh, of some sort and I'm not quite sure what that'll entail uh, and then there'll be some recommendations back to the government and I'm presuming that there'll be a, a much more extensive round of discussions depending on what uh, the two advisors uh, take back to the to the province at that point but. I really am not sure how they're going to be able to do an awful lot of this in the timetable that they've set. Uh, no, of both of them. I, I know Ken Sealing slightly. Of course, he's the former regional chair up in, in the KW yep, area. Yep. Uh, Michael Fenn I worked with uh, many, many years ago when he worked at the region of Hamilton-Wentworth. And, of course, he was a deputy uh, minister for a number of uh, different governments at Queen's Park. So they, uh, there's nothing the matter with the character of these two individuals. I guess the ultimate uh, question we've got here is, what's their mandate? Yes, and, and that 
uh, at the moment it's really advisory as as uh, as I try to read this there are a number of questions that they're asked to address I can't possibly see them doing it all I mean the <laughs> and I don't want to go off on a tangent here but uh this is really just the very first step in a, a much bigger process because if you read through all of the things that they're asked to look at this is not going to happen by the spring uh, but but the question of whether a review can happen. Certainly, I, I would have great confidence that the two uh, gentlemen who have been appointed are, are knowledgeable and, and uh, careful and thoughtful and all those kinds of things. The question really is whether there is another agenda that's built into this review uh, that uh, we may get to... Um, uh, you know, once once this first phase is uh, carried out. Well, and uh, let, let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that's the, the elephant in the room right now. Is is there a predetermined outcome to this already? And, and that's a concern that I have along the way. And the examples you used earlier, and, and they're, they're all over the province now, in the Harris years, there were a number of local reviews that went on, uh, individual commissioners appointed in various places, went through the scenarios that... Uh, uh, you know, reviewing what was in place at the time, and and gosh, surprise, surprise, they all came up with the same solution to different problems, namely amalgamation. Uh, that's the concern I have. That buried in here are the is the notion that there really is only one suitable answer. It's it's fewer units of government, fewer elected officials, and 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 all the things that go with that. If this is an exercise to get to that end, uh, I, I think we w- want to be very concerned. If, though, we take it uh, at face value that, no, that we're going to look at different scenarios and, and, and see what will work for them, then, then I would have uh, more confidence that this will be a genuine uh, assessment of, of what works and what doesn't work, because things still work. There, there, there are some parts of the system that, that work very well and don't necessarily need to change or don't need to change very much but if it's a if it's a roundabout way of saying let's finish the job that was started under the common sense revolution that then i i think we ought to be very uh, anxious well that's why there's a little trepidation and especially here in this area robert i mean I, I, this is actually the third time that we've seen a government do this at least in my memory uh, the, the amalgamation obviously is still fresh in a lot of people's minds but I was uh, way back in the early 70s just kind of wetting my beak uh, in journalism uh, as I was going through college, and, uh, and that's when the Davis government started talking about regional governments, and, uh, and there was a lot of pushback on that in just about every area, saying we don't want that. Yes, and, and that's the kind of scenario that, that this, this is apparently structured around, that we have had regional governments and variations on those for you know 50 or so years. It's time to step back and have a look, and, and that I don't have a problem with. Uh, regional government was a very important innovation in Ontario at that time because it took a county structure, which had been in place since 1849, where we had urban governments, quote-unquote, and rural governments, and the two of them were, were separate entities. And we still have that, of course, in London and Peterborough and, and uh, Simcoe County, various places where the cities are not part of the county government. Regional government said, we have to put the rural and, er- and urban areas together in some forum so that we can deal with growth issues and the things that come up even now over uh, green belts and all the rest of it. Regional government was a way to put those two together and and create uh, a body that can manage growth within those areas. Whether that's still the right way to go, I'm not sure. 
as I said a moment ago, the Harris uh, innovation was to say, let's just make them all one big government, which, you know, there are some who will defend that as as uh, more efficient, quote-unquote, less costly, uh, whatever. I'm not sure those have all been borne out, but that was the assumption. Uh, now you've got, and, and certainly I lived through that with the Hamilton Ward Boundary Review, yeah. you've got yeah. parts of the community that say, no, I'm not part of the urban area. In a regional government, I could be separate, and I don't have to. I can share some of the costs. I can share some of the the innovations, but I don't have to be part of of the dynamics where I'm I'm a tiny part of it. And by definition, the rural areas are going to be a small part. That that's the downside to simply saying there is one answer to everything. But th- therein lies the problem, and you and I talked about this when you were doing the ward boundary issue here in Hamilton, is is that line between rural and urban is, is yep. very blurred these days. So when, when you look at the growth areas here in Hamilton, Binbrook and Ancaster and, and Flamborough, uh, there's an argument to be made that those are, are growing uh, r- urban areas. I, within a rural property, we get that, but it's it's really a hybrid. That's right, and and again, I'm not persuaded, and this is where I'm hoping that, that what we see is a, is a careful review of, of whether indeed you can put those together in a way that recognizes the 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 present if you will dynamics of of growth within ontario and and you know that that certainly is going to be a challenge i can't see that happening by the spring uh but but we can start a conversation and look at models uh and and they're going to be different in different parts of the province let's let's be fair that you know, Peel, the, the challenges in Peel are going to be very different than the ones in, let's say, Simcoe County, which is part of this review. And to say there's one solution for all of them, I, I, if, especially if that's the, the hidden goal, to say there's one solution, I think, is, is not necessarily what we would like to see come out of this exercise. Which was really the mantra of the Harris government. This was going to be amalgamation, and it was, you know, yep. forced on Toronto, Hamilton, yep. Yep. Uh, and we, we've already talked about the places. And the, the reason they stopped, essentially, Robert, was obviously because of the pushback. It wasn't that they said, oh, it doesn't work anymore. They just said, okay, let's just put the brakes on this. And, and In fact, yes, and, and, some of the, and a lot of the pieces that went into that were never addressed, which back to Hamilton and the wards. We simply slapped together yep. a system to get the thing over with, but but didn't really follow it through to what it should look like on a number of counts. And, and uh, you know, that's that's going to be another issue here, that, that we have to learn from the, the problems that came up the last time, especially if there is a sense that this is the solution in the future. There's one element to this I want you to, to comment on, if I could, and I know that you, your time is tight today. Uh, having been through the debate, and I went through the public sessions when amalgamation was being discussed and ultimately uh, enforced here in Hamilton, uh, and Steve Gilchrist was the minister at the time. He gave way to Tony Clement, and, and we got the same song and dance, of course, from them. It was going to be cost-efficient. It's going to save taxpayers millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the reality here, whether it's Toronto, Hamilton, Sudbury, Ottawa, that never happened. Uh, so are they going to try to use that as a selling point again? Well, I'm afraid they are. It's sort of in, in, implicit in some of the statements uh, as part of the mandate and the direction that somehow this is going to be a, a much more effective uh, method of government that there is uh, a chance for opportunities for cost savings. I, I really think that that's a myth. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that amalgamation uh, would make for less expensive government. In, indeed, in some cases, it's the opposite. 
Robert, lots more to talk about in the days and weeks ahead. I really appreciate you uh, right. hopping in today for happy, this. Happy to talk, Bill. Take care. Any t- we'll get you back on soon. Robert Williams, of course, uh, public affairs consultant, former professor at the University of Waterloo. This this is a big deal, and and not, let's let's be clear about this. Given our situation here in Hamilton, I, I don't think there's a whole lot going on. As a matter of fact, we weren't even named in this because we've already been through that process, and we are an amalgamated region. Uh, but the government always tries to sell this, just as they did back in the ni- 1990s when the Harris government said, well, we want to have public consultation. We're not sure what we're going to do. Sure they do. They knew exactly what they were going to do. But you have to go through the dog and pony show of saying, okay, go on, I guess. And, and I felt badly as we were going through this because there were a lot of people that, that got hoodwinked into that whole process and thought, hey, you know what, our opinions really do count. And, and I remember talking with some of the regional mayors at the time. Ted McBeacon was in Flamborough. Uh, Bob Wade was in Ancaster, and, and John Addison in Dundas, and 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 Glenn Etherington uh, out in Glanbrook, and they really thought, wait a second, we're actually going to have some say in this, and maybe we can protect ourselves. And at the end of the day, it was just, no, this is what we're going to do. And I'm not carved in stone here to say that's what the Ford government's going to do, but I'm just saying the process oftentimes can leave people high and dry. And since we've been through this process, and frankly, a lot of us kind of bought into the hype at the time and said, yeah, you know what? If we have an amalgamated government, it's going to save us lots of money. And there were projections about millions of dollars in savings. And there were some efficiencies. But having gone through this, and I'm not sure if this is going to come up in the public consultations, because I know that our friends over in Halton region are going to be involved in this. Down St. Catharines Way in Niagara, where they still have two-tier government, they're concerned about what might happen here. And, hey, you know what? Pick up the phone and talk to some of the people in Hamilton about how the amalgamation supposedly was going to save millions of dollars. Because there are some realities that actually start to manifest themselves that they either didn't know about or didn't want us to know about. And those are some of the actually added costs of amalgamation. Because obviously there has to be some restructuring to do with pay schedules, you know, from different regions and different people doing different jobs. And then there have to be buyouts and too many people take the buyouts and on and on it goes. It was just a mess, a financial mess. And you muddle through it. I mean, it's, it's what we are. And I know there's still people right now in Ancaster and Flamborough and a number of other places that would say, hey, maybe this is an opportunity for us to get out of amalgamation. I don't get that sense from the municipal affairs minister. I get the sense that, look at this, this is a, a, the first step in saying we're going to maybe look at more amalgamations. And they're going to target places like KW and Burlington and Oakville and St. Catharines for that matter. I, I don't know how it's going to end, but I'm going to tell you this. And remember, we heard this right here. Just as uh, when we had the ward boundary debates and going on here in Hamilton over the last year and a half, and, 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 and Robert Williams, of course, was key in that. He was the guy that had facilitated a lot of that stuff. One of the things we always heard about was, you know, the turnout for those public meetings is, was just minuscule. Uh, if you do that again, you're going to get what you deserve. Be involved in this process. If they start coming around to your community and say, we want to find out how you feel about this, be loud. And tell them. I mean, there's there's going to be different opinions on that. We understand that. But this is a, a story that's going to have, I think, some big ramifications. And as I say, I, I know Ken Sealing a little bit. He's been a guest on the show a number of different times. Michael Fenn, I know, he's got an incredible stellar reputation. So, But these guys are the facilitators. It's ultimately going to be the Ford government that's going to make the decision as to what's going to happen here. And if you stand by and just simply say, well, I trust them, uh, well, watch out what might happen. And you can talk to some folks in Flamborough and Ancaster and other places about what amalgamation was promised and what it actually has delivered. 
because that may well be the road that they're going down here. We'll see. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton's Police Services Board uh, has approved a 3.23% budget increase, uh, the hike for this year for the police services, uh, moving it uh, closer to uh, being able to hire actually 27 new staff. There are another of, uh, a number of different aspects to this that uh, are, I think, worthy of some conversation here. By the way, that was passed unanimously by the board, so it'll move on to Hamilton City Council. Uh, but there are some logistical problems we need to put on the table here about exactly what the process is going to be. Chad Collins is a member of the Police Services Board. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us his take on this. Chad, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Good morning. Listen, you've, you've got a reputation for being somebody who very closely scrutinizes the, the numbers, uh, whether it's the city budgets or, of course, the police services budget. Uh, anything jump out at you yesterday as you went over these things? Well, I, you know... I, what I like to look at, too, is our comparators, and, and yeah. I think what the, the chief has been great in terms of providing the board with information. I know Councillor Jackson and I have only been, I think, to two or three meetings now, and very informative. There's a lot of inf- good information that the chief and, and his uh, senior staff have been able to provide. And I, I think what jumps out at me, Bill, to answer your question, is that we're doing relatively well as it relates to investing in police services here in our community and reducing crime in comparison to some other large uh, Canadian urban centres and so in, in terms of our number of officers per capita, in terms of our, you know, some of the key performance indicators that we look at in terms of crime, um, you know, the, the chief was quite blunt. Some of, the, some of the investments that we've made over the last number of years have yielded results. And, um, you know, a number of our crime stats are, are trending in the right direction. And you, you only need to, op- you know, open the paper or listen to your station, um, you know, once or twice a week to hear some of the some of the situations that exist in uh, in other communities and, you know, just look down the road at Toronto in terms of the situation they're in with gun violence and all the other things that come with that, and we're in a relatively good spot. But but you know, obviously when there are concerns like this, uh, I, the things that obviously elected officials need to kind of stay away from is you can't just throw money at it. It has to be done strategically. Talk, to me, talk to me about yeah. the plan that the chief seems to have here. Yeah, and, and the chief, um, you know, if I had to summarize uh, quickly in terms of, you know, where these investments are being made, I think we've all heard, Bill, whether it's through the election process or just through the term, anyone who's been in office for more than a couple of days knows that policing is very important in, in neighborhoods across the city. And, um, and so the chief is responding to those concerns. You covered it through the election process in terms of some parts of our communities suggesting they're not getting enough services, especially with police. I think we're under the microscope a bit. I would point to Flambeau in terms of some of the discussion that took place there in terms of, you know, whether there's merit or not even in terms of staying in Hamilton or whether they're going to Burlington. And police is one of those, I think, items that came up on the, on the list in terms of one of the things that Councillor Partridge and the mayor had to defend in terms of, you know, there's, there's a request for more services. And I think we're responding to that. The 24 officers that, uh, the, that w- the board will hire uh, with the, uh, under the guidance of the chief will be deployed equally across the city. And so we're, we're going to see, I believe it's eight officers per division. There's three divisions in the city. And so those concerns in terms of traffic-related calls, in terms of the uh, uh, increased police presence in all neighborhoods, and that's something we hear on a regular basis, um, you know, we'll be better able to respond to those concerns. I would also note, Bill, that, you know, in, in terms of looking at it as an investment, you covered it extensively, and I listened to your program that you had with the chief on talking about the sexual assault unit yeah. um, recommendations that came forward. That was addressed in the budget yesterday as well. The recommendation is to hire um, one uh, new detective constable, I believe, in that area in 219. And the board actually pre-committed to, to another position in that same area 
in 2020. And so that, that in terms of an investment, um, you know, workload was an issue in terms of one of the recommendations. We, we looked at the number of cases per officer in, in, in that area, and it was overwhelming. And uh, when people are overwhelmed in the workplace, um, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, um, bad things happen. And, and, I, and I think we're responding to the recommendations that came from the community in terms of making strategic investments in that area. And so I would point to, to that as an investment. And, of course, there's, um, you know, the new courthouse that will open. We're, we're obligated to have a presence there. And, and there's two positions, I believe, that have been allocated. Uh, in, that, in that that's area. mandated by the province, isn't it? Yeah. So there's, there was little discretion, I think, there. And, and of course, we're, you know, it's not just the community that the chief and the board are concerned about. It's our workforce. And the chief, I think, emphasized, at least in the couple of meetings that I've been at, is that um, the force, the service is under tremendous strain right now, and, and there's a morale issue. And so when people are overworked, you know, they um, you need to respond as the employer. And, and in this instance, I believe that providing additional resources will help the service deal with many of the issues that they're grappling with. And so while, you know, some of our major crime stats are trending in the right direction, the chief did emphasize to the board that it's taking us more time to deal with some of these larger, more complex um, uh, matters. So whether it's, you know, uh, situations like the Bosma case that um, they were very successful in, in addressing, whether it's now the cannabis issue that's been covered extensively on your show and in the media locally, and all the resources that the police are investing in, in those, um, whether it's the illegal portion or just fighting drugs and the opioid, opioid epidemic uh, locally, uh, all of those major issues, um, it, it, it takes, you know, resources away from, from other areas within the service. And so we're, we're trying to sort of fill the holes and fill the gaps in that regard. And, and I think, lastly, the chief is very cognizant, as is the board, in terms of council and the community's ability to pay. And so I think 3.23% is in the range of where council had um, – we, we always look at a five-year average for the police. So our finance staff had incorporated, at this point, early stages of the budget, 2.9% for police. So we're just over that target. We believe the board had great discussion, Bill, around, you know, by adding – a number of new officers to the front line will be able to reduce our overtime costs. We're hoping that in year we'll be able to see some savings there, and, and that'll help us moving forward into to, to the 2020 budget process. Well, let's talk about about staffing, uh, because whether we're talking about the public works budget or the police services budget, any budget that mm-hmm. the city's dealing with, Chad, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the number one driving force, obviously, is is going to be staffing, and it's going to be cost. It's 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 salaries, benefits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and it's it's been an ongoing concern with police. Uh, and it's a double-edged sword here because not only have you got those concerns, as you mentioned, with staffing, uh, they've been without a contract for about a year and a half now. So I, I, you really have to, I guess, give a best guess as to what those costs are going to be like going forward. Yeah, and, and that's been incorporated into the budget. So the, the good thing about you know the arbitration process and dealing with contracts with the police is that you know our comparator municipalities who have been through that process before us almost set the benchmark for us, and we kind of know almost to the dollar uh, at least this is a historic scenario we worked under. We almost know to the dollar in terms of what we can anticipate with our own contract, with our own service. And so it's a morale issue. It certainly is an, an ability to pay issue. And um, and, and as you mentioned, it, it, you know, um, police is very unique when it comes to their budget because 90%, I believe, of their of their uh, budget uh, is, is their, their labor costs. So there's not a lot of discretion as, you know, we look at city budget, it's a little bit different. Um, and dealing with police, as you're cutting, if you're looking at cutting their budget, traditionally then you're looking at reducing services. And when you're reducing services, that makes, makes 
that means, sorry, taking people off the street or, or out of the office who are working in a different capacity. And so I, I, I didn't hear anything through the last election bill that people were looking for less police. Um, the, the calls recently have centered around uh, break-and-enters, uh, car break-ins, especially traffic-related. The, the traffic calls that are coming into all of our offices here um, are, are really um, something I haven't seen in, in my whole time here on, on City Council. It's, it's almost an epidemic across the city, and you've covered extensively, extensively the situation on the Red Hill, and we, we almost have that same scenario on many residential streets. And so residents are looking for answers. We can certainly tweak you know, the design of some of our streets with stop signs and, 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 um, and speed bumps and things like that. But to get at the, you know, the heart of the issue, we have people who are driving recklessly, and, and the only way to enforce that is with the police. And so the, the chief did mention that one of the priorities will be uh, traffic-related enforcement. And I'm, and I'm certain that my colleagues, um, you know, that, that will come as um, welcome news to them, and, and I, I think they'll embrace that kind of uh, investment in our community, and that's really what it is at the end of the day. One of the stats that jumped out at me uh, it was uh, from Chief Gert here in his overview on this, uh, Chad, uh, was uh, he pointed to a 47,000-hour increase over four years of our uh, officers spent on calls. Uh, now, I, I'm going to connect the dots here because when I've had some anecdotal conversations with some of the frontline officers, uh, one of the number one complaints I hear from all of them is burnout, uh, that they're, mm-hmm. just, they're just tired. They're t- you know, I just physically, emotionally burned out. Yeah. Uh, are the staffing increases that you've talked about here, are they going to be sufficient to try to uh, alleviate some of that concern? I hope so. I mean, I'm, I mean, have more people on the street and, and more people in the office will certainly help with, you know, and I point to the sexual assault unit area where, you know, more, more officers in that area of the organization will mean less files uh, for, for the others in the office, and they'll be able to do a better job in terms of scrutinizing the information that they have and dealing with the cases that they have. Um, you know, I, I, I think policing, like many other uh, components of public service, and I would point to city housing, where we're not just a landlord anymore. We're forced to deal with some very complex social issues, whether it's mental health issues, whether it's some of our tenants have addictions, whether it's, you know, there are all, um, all kinds of issues that it's not just being a traditional landlord where you're responding to tenant concerns about their unit and or collecting the rent. Uh, and police are in the same boat. In fact, you know, they're, they're on the front lines and they're probably dealing with it more than, if I use city housing as the example, than anyone else. Uh, they're dealing with, you know, the opioid crisis. They're dealing with people on our streets with mental health issues, with the deinstitutionalization at the provincial level. You know, many of these in- individuals who were who were receiving many years ago support services uh, and, and a strong community, a strong community network, are now living on our streets, and um, you know, and they need help. And the police are often the first to respond, and so they're they're now dealing with these issues. Um, unlike ever before. And, and so, I, you know, I've had, I have, and I've had family in police service, and, and their assessment is just exactly what you said, Bill. There's, I think there's a feeling of frustration and a, and a sense of burnout. We're seeing that with our uh, PTSD numbers in terms of those people who are off, um, you know, work-related. And um, I think it tells a story. And, and I think the chief has responded and the, sur- and, and the board is responding with these additional investments to try to mitigate that. What about training? Uh, you talked about the sexual assault concern. And, and, and again, as, as that story broke, and actually a couple of different uh, versions of it uh, with mm-hmm. some of the numbers in the Globe and Mail and, of course, uh, through the local media here as well, uh, there, was, there was some questions raised about whether or not training was sufficient for some of these officers, and that may well have been a contributing factor. Is that being addressed? 
it is part of the recommendations. I, I had a, a chance to review the, the summary that was provided to the board, and, and of course, as a new member, I'm, there's still a learning curve. But I, I understand that, you know, that is uh, there were a number of recommendations within the report that came from the community, and uh, and the chief, um, I think he committed on your show, and I, I think the board is very supportive of of his in, with his recommendations is that we're going to start working through that list in terms of addressing many of the recommendations that were made internally, and, and one of them is training. We didn't spend a lot of time on that through the budget process over the last two meetings that I've been at, but I do know that that is on the to-do list, Bill, if you want to call it that, and is something that will be addressed through Chain 19 and beyond. Over and above that, uh, there's always a, a one item, probably a more than one line item, when it comes to infrastructure concerns. Uh, the, the police are, are in, well, they're pretty old buildings, and, and I know that even Central Police Station and a number of others uh, are in line for some repairs right now. Now, there seems to be a debate, chat as to whether or not that should be a city cost or a police budget cost. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, they have, they're in a very unique situation that, um, you know, they have their own internal reserves, but many times those reserves are not sufficient to cover the cost of major capital repairs. And so they make do within the, with some small um, uh, accounts that they have to deal with. So I think if, you know, they have a leaky roof and it needs to be repaired, there's that question whether it's actually capital or whether it falls into the maintenance category. And I think the police have done a good job over the years in terms of dealing with that. They have, though, some capital um, requirements uh, this year that they are unable to accommodate through their own budget. I believe that Mr. Zagarek and Mr. McMullen um, in our finance department and, and Mr. Zagarek acting as our acting uh, city manager currently have incorporated those costs into the city budget. So I'm confident that at least for this year, the capital costs can be accommodated. Uh, in addition to not just their buildings, we're, we're also looking at building the new Marine Service build. Uh, as you know, the, the building that yeah. is on the waterfront right now is literally you know falling apart and into the into the bay. And so we we have a, a plan through the city's budget because it's part of our plan to develop that area of the waterfront, Pier Seven and Eight, to replace that building in another location. The plan is still to move it to the former McDonald Marine area. So lots of good things happening from a capital perspective, and of course they're. Uh, you know, the forensic building is still under construction and is on budget. We did receive an update there from the chief and his staff. And so good things are happening from a, a capital investment standpoint. Uh, I, I'm not certain what 2020 looks like and beyond. Uh, I think that's a discussion we'll probably have through through the year. We didn't really focus on future trends. I do know that the, the chief did provide us with a, uh, at least an operating budget uh, snapshot. And I believe for 20, 2020, 2021, we're looking in the 25 to 2.9%. And then in the, in the fourth year of this term, I think the chief has a preliminary budget of one and a half percent. So almost in line with city city departments, and um, and very lean compared to you know where the service was at ten fifteen years ago, where these percentages were much higher. What about help from the province? And now I know there have been grants in the past. I, I, my understanding is police services had not heard from the province yet. Uh, the premier has been pretty easy at throwing money around to, to Metro Police about some of their problems and what others, the gun problem and the gangs, and we understand yeah. that. Uh, but you'd like to think that uh, that we could get, a, you know, a couple of morsels of that, too. We've had a, a less than successful record oftentimes in, in trying to get money from the province for situations like this. Uh, do you, is there an official ask here? I'm so glad you raised it, Bill, and that's one, that was my first question that I had at the board, and that was, you know, we seem to be, have become a, a have-not city as it relates to provincial and federal investments, and I you know, I, I look at the announcements. We all follow. You know, we re- read the, the the you know the local media or even national media, and you see these checks that are and these investments that are provided by the federal and provincial governments. And we just don't seem to get as many investments here locally as others. In fact, I think the chief highlighted that investments have already been made 
in Ottawa and Toronto without an application process. So unfortunately, you know, politics being as it is, uh, sometimes, um, you know, the, the, the governments, whether it's the feds or the province, can play favorites. Usually Toronto and Ottawa are top of the list. And so there, there wasn't an application process, as I understand it, for some of those recent, recent investments. But the mayor was quick to respond, and, and the board, I think, uh, is, is looking at making that a major issue for us in 2019. There's a federal election on the horizon. Traditionally, that's when investments are made in communities across the country. We haven't received anything from the federal government, and I, I think the chief even highlighted it. You know, the, we, we have to go back to the Harper days to see some substantial investments that have made, been made through HPS. Um, and so it's been a while. It's been years since we've received something from the feds. We certainly aren't going to rule out the province. If they're giving it to other cities, we want to be included in that mix. So it's a, it's a big discussion because policing has always been a shared responsibility. Primarily, it's, it's been funded by the municipality, and I wouldn't suggest that we start uploading those costs. But it, it's always been a shared responsibility in that the province and the feds have periodically um, provided either grant monies for special issues that we're working on or uh, um, operating dollars to hire new officers. Well, or special programs. I mean, I know some yep. of the money that was doled out to Toronto was uh, for the, the Guns and Gangs program. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, of course, ha- you know, Toronto, the GTA numbers are nowhere near what we have in Hamilton. I mean, it's apples and oranges. I get that. Yep. But on a per capita basis, this is still a significant problem in this city. And that's what we look at. We, we Exactly that, though. We look at the per capita basis, and um, we're not asking for as much or more than those other communities, although it would be nice. But we, we understand the, the financial realities at the higher levels of government. We're just asking for a fair share. And I think the discussion we had yesterday, and it's come up now at, at three consecutive meetings. I've raised it every meeting. I just want our fair share, and I, and I want to make sure that, um, you know, we're just not being ignored. And it seems like, at least um, on the federal level, uh, that, that that's the case. Uh, I'm not certain they've made policing a priority uh, yet. We've seen, certainly, you know, they've talked about a national housing strategy. Um, they've focused primarily on, you know, the, the cannabis and the legalization of cannabis. They were quick to respond to that, and I my comments were, I, I just wish they'd put as much time and energy into resolving some of our other issues that face municipalities across the nation as they did on the legalization of, uh, of marijuana. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that through the calendar year, we're going to see an investment from the federal government. You know the, the way that it works, Bill. They, they start making their East Coast to West Coast or West Coast to East Coast tour. They start delivering checks. And, um, and I'm hoping our local members um, that we have representing us as part of the government see policing as a priority and, uh, you know, bend the ear of the minister and or the prime minister to ensure that Hamilton gets its fair share. Chad Collins from the Police Services Board. Chad, thanks so much for this. We'll uh, see how this uh, is uh, handled once the city council gets their hands on it. But uh, thanks, thanks so much Bill. for this today. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, very disturbing uh, news. Actually, this is a, a couple of different stories I want to join together here. Uh, one, of course, is Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale, who was speaking out in Saskatchewan the other day, uh, and talking about the the rise in the number of uh, alt-right groups, uh, white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups here in uh, Canada. And uh, we saw evidence of that yesterday as uh, one of our staffers, Luke Vermeer, who uh, produces the uh, the afternoon show, Scott Thompson here, uh, was on his way home after the program. And uh, through Dundas, and I get, I'm told out through Ancaster, uh, a number of posters have been splattered around on bus shelters and on uh, poles uh, glued on, as it turns out, and it's uh, a group called ID Canada, uh, which uh, I don't want to get too deeply into the rant that goes on on their webpage, but it says ID Canada was created as a response to Canada's decaying identity, increased third world immigration, 
and the prevalence of anti-European sentiments in the country. And it goes on with more uh, stuff, variations on that theme, which uh, certainly seems to qualify as a, a pretty good descriptor of one of the groups that uh, Mr. Goodell was talking about. Why are these on the rise, and are they trying to gain a foothold in communities like this? I want to bring Bernie Farber into the conversation. Bernie, of course, is the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Bernie, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Always good to be with you, Bill. But, but why is this happening? I mean, you know, I think Mr. Goodell's bang on. I mean, we've seen this, uh, certainly anecdotally through the media. We've heard about this in the States. Uh, but we're kidding ourselves if we don't think it's happening here. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I had a, uh, the opportunity to speak with uh, Minister Goodell um, about a month and a half ago, he was here in, in Toronto addressing a group of ethnic groups, and he and I spent a few minutes together, and we were exactly discussing this issue, that in fact the, the, the hard right is not just on the rise, but you and I have known each other, Bill, a long time, and you know that I've been involved in dealing with the hard right since the early 1980s, mm-hmm. and I can tell you that I have not seen such a uh, significant rise uh, coming from areas where we've not seen it before, in university campuses, on high school campuses, etc. Um, and it, it, it's happening clearly. Uh, groups like uh, ID Canada, by the way, formerly known as Generation uh, ID, and we discovered uh, that the founder of Generation ID was one Tyler Hover. And he, he used to post on neo-Nazi groups like Stormfront. So what they've done is they've renamed their group um, trying to rebrand themselves, but let's let's be clear: this is an alt-right group. They supported Faith Goldie in the Toronto municipal elections, and of course, Ms. Goldie is better known for her uh, her support and her um, not more than dalliances, her dancing with white supremacist and neo-Nazi organizations here in Toronto. So let let nobody be fooled. This is a white nationalist group. Uh, they are alt right, and their rhetoric alone should be enough to to warn everybody. Neo Nazi groups, Bernie, have been around for a long time. You and I, you're right. We've been talking about this for years. Uh, why all of a sudden the proliferation is is it is it because there are now social media platforms for, for them to gain a foothold and actually spread their message? Uh, I think that's certainly one of the key uh, uh, key issues, and that is something that I, I did bring up with uh, with the minister, and he and I both agreed that we have to find a way to work with internet service providers um, because they're the ones that give the platform for these people. Anybody can be a newspaper publisher now. All you have to do is literally have a laptop. Uh, you can create a profile, and boom, you can publish whatever you want at the, at the touch of a finger, really, and potentially get it out there for, to, to, to thousands of people. And let us say that only... 50 people heed that message. And out of that 50, only 10 people are hardcore, violent extremists. Well, we, we have seen what that means. It means Quebec City, where a hardcore, violent, right-wing extremist walked into a mosque and murdered six people. We saw it actually in Pittsburgh, where a hardcore, uh, right-wing uh, uh, extremist walked into a synagogue and murdered 11 people. And we saw it here in downtown Toronto, when a man, a misogynist coming from the hard right wing, got into a van and mowed down 12 people, killing many of them, wounding many. Uh, we're, we're, in a, we're in a very difficult time where uh, people are being motivated online and very little controls are there to ensure that we, we, we can have a safety net of some kind. But you always think when situations are in like this, and it's, this is not the first time in history, Bernie, where uh, people that are, are downtrodden feel as if, okay, we have to lash out. Somebody has to be to blame, and it's certainly not us, so it's got to be somebody else. Uh, but but 
you know, we're, we're not in a recession. I mean, you know, there's employment, there seems to be opportunity, there, there's education, but yet there are people that yep. seem ready, willing, and able to, uh, to, to uh, absorb this message. Bill, it's all part of the fear-mongering that has taken place, and I, I believe it has really been stoked by the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States. Um, remember, he is the man who, after Charlottesville, which was a key turning point in the whole uh, uh, development of the alt-right neo-Nazi movement, this was the uh, this was the march by neo-Nazis in downtown Charlottesville in August of uh, 2017, where white supremacists marched down the main street, passing synagogues, yelling "Burn it down!" and then marching on, saying "Jews will not replace us." And the president of the United States went on to television internationally and exclaimed that you know both sides are to are to be blamed, whatever that means. And then, of course, he went on to say that there are such a, there are such things as, as good Nazis or good people on both sides. This gave a breath of fresh air to these uh, basement dwellers, to these to these neo Nazis and these racists and these misogynists and Islamophobes. They literally stepped out of their garbage cans. They dusted themselves off, and they said, now we can really get down to business because we have the President of the United States backing us. And it, it took off after that, and it continues to take off. And people are now, you know, like grabbing onto it. And you're right, we're not in an, in an economic recession, but we're in a place where fear is ruling. Uh, fear against immigrants, fear against Muslims, fear against the other. And it's, it, it, it's, it's an amazing, weird, upside-down, Alice in Wonderland kind of a world where for the first time in Canadian history, and by the way, this is true for the Hamilton area as well, where neo-Nazis ran for municipal office, they gained upwards to 50,000 votes. That means 50,000 people in the Toronto-Hamilton area found it okay to vote for a Nazi to hold public office. That should be enough to sober many of us. Yeah, we had one ran for mayor from the last municipal we election here in the Hamilton area. We had one here, and we had one in, in, in um, a Mississauga run for mayor, and collectively they garnered over 50,000 votes. Why do so many people turn their backs on this? And, and uh, maybe as an example, Bernie, I want to talk about uh, Steve Kingers, the uh, congressional member, of course, sure. uh, who's, who's a racist, he's a white supremacist, and admittedly so. Uh, and, but he's been in office for quite some time. Yeah, he's, he's ranted like this just this past week. Finally, uh, some of his fellow congressmen finally decided to, to censure him because of some of the comments. But this has been going on for years. And, and of course, the ultimate uh, you know, double standard here is while they're doing that to him, uh, their boss, the president of the United States, who's been ranting like this for the last two years, gets a free pass. It's it absolutely stunning to me. I just came back from the United States. I spent the last three or four weeks uh, in the southern United States in Florida, which well, the weather was nice, but the atmosphere was absolutely stinging. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've not seen it like this uh, ever, where there are such polarized sides. You have you know, a minority, I will say, but nonetheless a minority around the pool, for lack of a better term, very strong supporters of Trump, as if he can do no wrong. And then you have the Democrats on the other side yelling and screaming. And, you know, before they used to talk about, I don't know, early bird dinners and their health woes. Now they're speaking in, in, in almost violent rhetoric about politics in the United States. And I know that the Americans hold their politics close to their heart, but this is something I've not seen before. And it's spilling into Canada. You know, they say that if the United States sneezes, Canada catches a cold. Never more true than it is today. And we've, we've seen this populist movement growing. Uh, here in Canada, here in Ontario, we've seen it with the election of Doug Ford. 
Uh, and we're seeing it nationally with the running of, of Maxime Bernier, who has also glommed on to these ideas. And you're quite right, Bill. Steve King has been a racist since the day he stepped into Congress. Not just a racist, a supporter of white supremacy. And everybody knew it. And finally, the public spoke out. And it, it, it does speak, I believe, to the power of the people. That if enough people speak out and if enough people, as my father used to say, open a mouth, things can change. But until we keep on doing that consistently, you're going to see more and more of this. There's an interesting uh, dichotomy that goes on, and you touched on this about how, well, Trump, obviously, as an example, but some others in the political realm that have uh, have gravitated uh, to higher office because of this. And is it, Bertie, because they're, they're actually giving a mixed message? Those may indeed be some of their ideals, but they're mixing that up with a hybrid message about, well, you know, we're going to cut costs, we're going to make this a better life, you know, we're going to get back to values, et cetera, like this. So so even those that may be moderately interested in this sort of thing, gra- they, they, they're just they're hooked on to this sort well, of thing. Well, I think what they've learned, sadly, is that there is a uh, an appetite for some of this. I mean, Donald Trump in the United States has a base. Let us say it's 30%. He will always have that 30% base. I believe in Canada. I believe in Ontario. There is that same base. It may not be 30%, but there is a base from which you can grow. So if you're able to maintain the base of racists at, let's say, 30%, 25%, and then grow your message using a more uh, small-C, big-C conservative values, then the hope is, of course, you have your base and you can add on to that. And that's exactly what happened with the Trump win. People were sick and tired of the old kind of politics, as they called it. They wanted something new. There was nothing else to offer. And Trump uh, appeared to a certain extent to, to reach out. He had his base, and then he had the other conservatives. Let's give this guy a try. We can't have this happen here. We have to be uh, cognizant. We have to be uh, you know, observant. Ralph Goodell is finally getting the message. This is not new. This has been on, this has been ongoing for years and years. There's always been peaks and valleys in the development of racist ideology. We had it back in the '80s with the Heritage Front that actually, you know, uh, attracted hundreds and hundreds of young people. Uh, finally, the ISIS got involved and, and destroyed the Heritage Front. And then we sort of rested on our laurels. We were more worried about ISIS and Al Qaeda. They are something to worry about, but really, if you take a look at the last two years, where has the real threat come from? It's come from the hard right. That's where Canadians have been murdered, as a result of threats from the hard right. Well, and, and obviously fudging statistics is a, is a key part of, of getting their message out there, and, and, and people seem ready, willing, and able to buy into that as well. I mean, statistically, uh, you know, anybody who's, uh, and, and again, it's, it's conflating. You know, you, you've talked about people of the Muslim faith. Uh, there's there's a feeling among many of these groups that well if you're a Muslim then you're 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 automatically you're a radical. Oh yeah, and, and you're an enemy. And by the way, the same you know the people in my community, in the Jewish community, ought, ought not to rest on their laurels either. Uh, anti-Semitic hate crime has risen to to degrees we've we've not seen in in literally in, in decades. Uh, you know they hate the other. The other is to blame for everything. And now, uh, interesting, I went to a synagogue service in, in, in Florida just a couple of weeks ago. I had to go through a metal detector and be body searched before I was able to, you know, to get into the sanctuary. That's an incredible statement, if you think about it, that in order to go and practice your faith, 
you had to walk through a metal detector and then be, uh, you know, a search, body search. That is an incredible thing to, to have to comprehend in the 21st century. We, we've got this naivety, too, that's, and you just talked about the social media platforms that are being used here. Uh, there are still so many people, and I run into them on a daily basis, uh, Bernie, that say, look, at if I read it in the Internet, it's got to be true. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the Internet is, I, I think, I mean, look, it, it's like anything else. It's got its good and it's got its bad. And when it's good, it's very good. But when it's bad, it can be very bad. And you're right. You see something on screen and it, it appears like it's written in a newspaper format and people just believe it to be true. I mean, even on the Steve King issue, I saw a piece today in the Huffington Post in which NBC News said, let's not call Steve King a racist. Let us just say he expounds some racist views. Now, that was updated about 24 hours later where they said, no, no, it's okay to call him a racist. People have to start talking facts, and I know this is difficult. When the President of the United States spends much of his time lying, you know, facts become not just fudgeable, but uh, unfactual. And so it's, it's urgent. You know, we have people from the Toronto Star like Daniel Dale who fact-checks everything Donald Trump says. We need more people doing that, not just in the United States, but here in Canada. We have to get back to the truth and not just rely on the Internet to give us our information. How do we stop this tide? Well, you know, if, I know, if I I know it's not full, a simple answer. I know. If I had the full answer, I'd write a book and become a millionaire. But there you the, go. The, the truth of the matter is that education is our best antidote. Schools, from public schools through high schools to universities, teachers have to learn how to deal with these issues. Um, right now, uh, our group is actually working with a number of school boards, York Region, Toronto District School Board, and others. To, uh, and we have developed workshops in order for teachers to begin to identify how extremism develops and how they can identify students who are just on the line, who might be ready to go over that line so that they can help them back across onto the, best, uh, onto the better side. And, th- and teachers have to do this across the board. They have to be able to identify where these things begin and, and nip it in the bud. Without that, I think we're going down a very bleak and dark trail. Well, and there's misrepresentation that goes on, too. I mean, even Trump the other day talking about uh, people coming across the border and their murders of rapists, and that's been a theme that he's been uh, spouting for the last couple of and, years, I guess. And people continue to believe it, and, you know, the whole concept of the wall is if that's going to be some miraculous savior. You know, the, 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 fact, the fact of the matter is, and we know this, that immigrants and refugees that come to this country and the United States are of the most law-abiding people. The, the, the stats are there to prove it, and yet we want to believe what, what fear is. We'd rather not believe the goodness. We'd rather believe the fear. And I don't know what it is in, in the human psyche that makes us be that way. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've always hoped that we, that we are better than that. And I think, I hope that most Canadians are better than that. The very fact that we took in um, this, uh, this Saudi Arabian, this young woman, literally saved her life. Now, despite how people are reading into it and what that means, we saved a woman's life as a result of our ability to embrace and understand the need to take in people who are different from us. That's a great sign about Canada that I want to hold on to. Bernie, thanks as always. Always a pleasure. The more we talk about this, the more we get the message across. Thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. Call me anytime. You betcha. We'll take care. Bye-bye. Bernie Farber, of course, from the uh, uh, organization called the uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network, uh, and uh, a message that needs to be ho- told and uh, spread as quickly as we can. Uh, it's getting kind of dangerous here with some of the stuff that we're seeing and hearing on this side of the border as well. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.